ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, so I'm thrilled to be here this evening with Sally Rooney, of whose work I'm such an ardent fan, and whose work has made me feel and think so deeply about the way we live now and the way we live with one another. Um, her vivid and compulsive fiction has made me consider afresh some of the most vital themes of the human condition, uh, whether they be our needs and desires, uh, frailty, shame, being harmed and causing harm, freedom and interdependence, um, the giving of care, and of course love itself. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today to celebrate the paperback publication of Normal People. Um, I'm sure that everyone here has read the novel, so I won't uh, bore you with describing it in any kind of detail. Um, but just to say that I think that something that Sally does that's amazing in the book is depict this kind of like very close interiority of the characters but also their kind of interactions and through that we come to know them very deeply but also we kind of come to know their context and the way in which different forces in society act upon them um so whether these forces may be uh class or capitalism or patriarchy or um all kinds of different things that they have no control over or volition. Um, that kind of um, exquisite and close portrait is something that feels quite uncommon in this moment, but also kind of taps into like a very rich lineage of the 19th century novel and also some kind of really brilliant American writers. Um, to me, it's a, quite a remarkable novel of craft and ideas, but also of heart. So it's an honour to have you here this evening to dig into it a bit more deeply. Um, to kick things off, Sally's going to read for us a small section, and then we'll have a chat, and then we'll hand things over to you. So please do now start thinking of your questions. No comments, please. Um, um, thank you for that very mm -hmm. kind introduction. Um, I'm really pleased that you're here, Kish. I'm really glad that we're doing the event together. And I'm really pleased that you're all here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to start with a short reading from... Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with a short reading from um, early in the novel. So the two protagonists, Connell and Marianne, are still teenagers at this point, And they're in school together. And they're sort of conducting a clandestine relationship outside school, which people in their school don't know about. Um, I don't think you need a whole lot more context than that. So I'm going to read just a brief scene. Not even the full scene, actually, just a little bit of it. Last week, Connell mentioned something called the ghost. Marianne had never heard of it before. She had to ask him what it was. His eyebrows shot up. The ghost, he said. The ghost estate, Mountain View. It's like right behind the school. 
Marianne had been vaguely aware of some construction on the land behind the school, but she didn't know there was a housing estate there now, or that no one lived in it. People go drinking there, Connell added. Oh, said Marianne. She asked what it was like. He said he wished he could show her, but there were always people around. He often makes blithe remarks about things he wishes. I wish you didn't have to go, he says when she's leaving, or I wish you could stay the night. If he really wished for any of those things, Marianne knows, then they would happen. Connell always gets what he wants and then feels sorry for himself when what he wants doesn't make him happy. Anyway, he did end up taking her to see the ghost estate. They drove there in his car one afternoon and he went out first to make sure no one was around before she followed him. The houses were huge, with bare concrete facades and overgrown front lawns. Some of the empty window holes were covered over in plastic sheeting, which whipped around loudly in the wind. It was raining, and she had left her jacket in the car. She crossed her arms, squinting up at the wet slate roofs. Do you want to look inside? Connell said. The front door of number 23 was unlocked. It was quieter in the house, and darker. The place was filthy. With the toe of her shoe, Marianne prodded at an empty cider bottle. There were cigarette butts all over the floor, and someone had dragged a mattress into the otherwise bare living room. The mattress was stained badly with damp and what looked like blood. Pretty sordid, Marianne said aloud. Connell was quiet, just looking around. Do you hang out here much, she said. He gave a kind of shrug. Not much, he said. Used to a bit, not much anymore. Please tell me you've never had sex on that mattress. He smiled absently. No, he said. Is that what you think I get up to at the weekends, is it? Kind of. He didn't say anything then, which made her feel even worse. He kicked a crushed can of Dutch gold aimlessly and sent it skidding towards the French doors. This is probably three times the size of my house, he said. Would you say? She felt foolish for not realising what he had been thinking about. Probably, she said. I haven't seen upstairs, obviously. Four bedrooms. Jesus. Just lying empty, no one living in it, he said. Why don't they give them away if they can't sell them? I'm not being thick with you, I'm genuinely asking. She shrugged. She didn't actually understand why. Something to do with capitalism, she said. Yeah. Everything is, that's the problem, isn't it? She nodded. He looked over her as if coming out of a dream. Are you cold, he said. You look like you're freezing. She smiled, rubbed at her nose. He unzipped his black puffer jacket and put it over her shoulders. They were standing very close. She would have lain on the ground and let him walk over her body if he wanted. He knew that. When I go out at the weekend or whatever, he said, I don't go after other girls or anything. Marianne smiled and said, No, I guess they come after you. He grinned. He looked down at his shoes. You have a very funny idea of me, he said. Thank you. I absolutely adore that moment in the book and that particular scene on the ghost estate, which happens very, very early on, um, maybe only a few pages into the book. Um, Because to me, it feels like that moment on the ghost estate is like a a miniature of the whole novel in terms of the kind of political context of kind of post-crash island of their particular dynamic, their kind of understandings and misunderstandings of each other, and also the secrecy. Um, I don't know if, if, that, if that feels like that way to you or if, it, if that's a different kind of understanding, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely think there was 
some reason why I wanted to set a scene on a ghost estate. Um, and speaking as a novelist, sort of novelistically, what the ghost estate did for me was very much what you're describing. Mm. It allowed them to have this sort of secret interaction, but without reusing the same scenery of their houses, which mm-hmm. I'd already used quite a lot at that point. So it's nice to take your characters out of the familiar scenery and put them somewhere new. Um, as a novelist, it kind of gives, it gives a new dynamic to the scene, and mm-hmm. it, it allowed me to do things with them that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. But I mean, obviously, there is also the kind of conceptual concern that you're talking about. Um, you know, I'm someone who's very interested in the effects of the economic crash on Irish society. So I can't say to myself, oh, I wanted to make some kind of commentary on um, like the Irish housing crisis or the property bubble or something, because I don't think the scene really offers that commentary. I suppose all it does is... Um, allows the landscape of and mm-hmm. um, like just the material geography of post-crash Ireland mm-hmm. to sort of intrude on the narrative and become part of it in that way and um, I again like I wasn't doing it for any like it's not like the characters it's not like it's really offering any uh, political point about the ghost estate I have nothing to say about it necessarily it's just um that first of all it was useful for me to put it there and then once I put it there I realized the characters would never go there without at least trying to talk about what that kind of geographical space represented in their lives mm-hmm. um, so that yeah that let me do something that I found interesting mm-hmm. and I think that also you get that there's something else that's kind of revealed in that moment is again it's this it's a scene with with this kind of very um, kind of uh, creeping dialogue where each person says like a particular sentence and edges things on in the dynamic and you get this kind of like very live sense of two people interacting and their understanding of each other Um, and when I read Normal People I was really taken with these two characters because they feel so vivid and so real which is what so many people are saying in terms of their like reading of the novel and so I had felt like the two characters of of Marianne and um, Connell not Carrie-Anne were the engines of this book and were kind of pushing Mm. it forward in terms of the plot flowing from them Mm. but actually you kind of I guess I've read that you start out from a dynamic and I'm interested in that relationship between um, the dynamic and the characters Mm. and whether one comes first or the other or whether they kind of emerge together yeah it's such an interesting question for me because I can't really conceive of character separately from dynamic and that's both speaking as a a novelist in Mm. the sense that I never write about characters in isolation. And I, don't, I can't think of a novel that is about a character in isolation. Mm-hmm. It would be a very experimental novel, very mm. much a break with what we consider the novel to be doing. Um, generally, novels are about situating characters within social settings and obviously within intimate relationships, personal relationships and families as well. Um, so that's sort of like that's how I conceive of character. A character to me is someone who is engaged in one or more dynamics Mm -hmm. at a given time. Um, And I can't actually imagine what it would be like to write about a character who was just on their own all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. it would be a real challenge as a novelist. And and it's it's not what I think of when I think of my characters. They become who they are through their interactions with other people. Mm -hmm. And then, so the other side of that is that, like, sort of speaking conceptually or philosophically, I'm much more interested in the relationship as a unit of social life than the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not really attracted to individualism as a a philosophy, and I'm not really interested in the individual as as a unit in the novel either. I'm much more interested in coming up with an interesting relationship and then allowing that relationship to change how I think about the people who are participating in it. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know... um, Connell could come across like a very different person in a different relationship with a different woman or a, or a different man. It would mm. be he would come ac- because of his 
you know, um, because of the particular power disparities or because of how he felt about the other person, he could come across like really differently from how he comes across in this book. Um, so this specific book isn't really about him and his psychology or Marianne and her psychology. It's about the dynamic that emerges between them and trying to trace um, sort of as attentively as I could the developments in that. Yeah, I don't know if that, I hope that answers your question. No, no it doesn't. Yeah. I, think, I think like I have this kind of like, I'm like chicken and egg, which one came first? Yeah. Like which one, like did, do you did Connell come to you first? Did Marianne come to you first? Or no, no they go together. Of... And I can't imagine writing about <laughs> like them holding hands. Yeah, exactly. Well, and actually, they they first they first like walked into my brain. I wrote this story, um, which was like a failed short story, which never went anywhere. And it's set when they're maybe twenty four or twenty five. Mm-hmm. I guess the age I was when I was writing it, probably. Um, and. Uh, they're attending some kind of political protest or rally together in Dublin and it seems they haven't seen each other for a while and Marianne's maybe coming home um, and there's some tension between them and they go to this protest and then then there's a scene after the protest and that was the full story. But there was no sense in which I was interested to write about this woman or this man without each other they mm-hmm. never they never like they, they never occurred to me without each other yeah. it was very much that what I wanted to write about was that relationship and in order to write about it intelligently or try to I had to um, you know grow and develop an understanding of who they were separately as well to some extent um, and so this there's a story in, that it was published in the White Review yes. which is called At the Clinic mm-hmm. which um, also features these characters. So was it kind of that you wrote this first story that was abandoned and then did you write At the Clinic? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I wrote this first story that was abandoned um, and it just didn't work as a story. It wasn't, again, that the dynamic wasn't um, interesting to me because it was, but the, the, the particular moment that I'd chosen to meet these characters was just not the moment. It just wasn't like the right place and time to meet them. So I decided to try meeting them in another place and time. And um, what, it, what it ended up being was that Marianne needed to get a wisdom tooth removed and Connell like, drives her to the dentist. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the, the moment. And for whatever reason, it doesn't sound like that compelling of a pitch, but it did work for me. <laughs> I did find like I could do something that, again, to me felt interesting with the characters in that particular setup. Um, you know, I don't know why. But anyway, that... that once I met them in that moment then I found myself including I haven't read the story in a long time actually yeah. but I found myself including in, in the paragraphs references to things that had happened yeah. to them previously in their lives and so after I finished writing that story I was interested to know what I had been hinting at in those paragraphs and so I kind of like looped back and went to meet the characters much earlier in their lives when they're only 18 and I, and I started to do it just really from Connell's perspective um, in a, what I thought was going to be a story called Funny Girls. Um, and then it just turned into a, it just turned into a book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these things happen. Um, for any kind of Sally Rooney mega fans, I do really recommend that you pick up that issue of the White Review, um, which has the story, because it is amazing for the fact that it, it exists almost as a miniature of the novel. Mm. There are so many things within that story, all of these little traces that you sort of planted for yourself as Easter eggs within that story <laughs> to then like go and hunt yeah. back, which I find like kind of, it suggests that the novel was inside you that whole time, which is, it's fascinating the way imagination works. Um, but it is all there. Mm. Um, so if you're extra geek and you want more normal people material, go get that. Um, I think that there's also, within that story, it's very much about the dynamic between Connell and Marianne. And 
Um, in that sort of dynamic, it feels like so much of what they're negotiating is kind is kind of how to be together as like a man and a and a woman. Like it feels very gendered, and it's big up to you because it's like a sexual relationship. Um, and it sort of feels like it touches on some territory from conversations with friends, which is quite like a feminist territory, I think. Which is um, how how can men and women be together? Mm. How can how do women and women relate to one another? How can we um, escape like very much more kind of traditional modes like there's lots of references through normal people where for example Connell's mother's like oh when we were a certain age people were just together or not I don't understand why you keep breaking up and getting together Mm. and I feel like there's some of that negotiation of that how can you break out traditional relationships but also what mistakes might we make in trying to break out this very traditional form yeah that is absolutely I would say almost the dominant question of everything that I've written so far (laughs) um like how can people be together uh that's the main question that I've been asking yeah and and I haven't obviously come up with any answers but that's not really my job um yeah I I think I am fascinated by like I think theoretically in the discourse we're maybe like at a place where you know there's a shared acknowledgement that relationship forms of the past Mm -hmm. um were not necessarily for everyone. Like, not, not, um, not that they're, like, I- intrinsically repressive forms like the nuclear family and things like that, um, but, that the, but that the coercive aspect of them was, was socially repressive, that everyone was forced to participate in relationship forms that were not actually suited for everyone. And so there's, like, an inc- I think there's an increasing sort of acknowledgement that, like, stuff like that, rigid gender roles and stuff, not good. Um, but... but the questions that remain much less sort of like coherently answered mm-hmm. are like, well, then what? You know. Yeah. Um, so let's say we do away with all those repressive relationship forms of the past. What do we replace them with? Um, I, that to me feels like quite still an open question. Um, and I don't just mean like in the sort of theoretical. Obviously, I wasn't trying to write in either book. I wasn't trying to write a tract on what relationships of the future or even the present moment should look like. I'm just interested in exploring what they do look and feel like in a maybe in a cultural moment where certainties around relationship forms have deteriorated slightly. Having said that, like I think, you know, um, Lorraine, Connell's mother, does remark to him at one point, oh, when I was your age, we were either going out with someone or we weren't. Like, um, and Connell replies, well, where did I come from then? Because actually, um, Connell has never known his father and Lorraine got pregnant when she was 17. Um, and I think his response is apt in one sense because really what he's saying is, although the fictions in which we participated socially, like the dominant fictions were that you were either in a monogamous relationship or you weren't, that was never actually the reality of how people lived their lives. That was how we said we were living our lives. But, it, but it's not reflected in people's real experiences people's real experiences were a lot more ambiguous and uncertain than that a lot of the time, the same way that ours are now, except that now maybe the labels that we place on things reflect that ambiguity to a greater extent. So, I mean, I think that there has always been, like, you know, monogamy has been a big ideal for a long time. I don't know that it's been a big reality for a long time. Um, And so I'm interested in the, yeah, I'm interested in the slippages between the language that we use and what it actually describes. I suppose all writers are interested in that, right? But I'm interested in it specifically when it comes to relationships. Yeah, and I think, and I'm loath to ask you about 
normalcy because I am very aware that Sally's just come back from the States where she's been on a big press junket. I'm sure that everyone has asked you about normalcy, but it feels pertinent in terms of what you're talking about when you're talking about um, these traditional relationship structures and that they were kind of more present in name than in practice. Mm. And it also feels like there is this concept of normalcy that runs through the novel and within the uh, particular psychologies of Marianne and Connell where Marianne feels very much that she's not normal and um, that she's kind of debased in some way um, and Connell is sort of struggling to maintain his kind of facade of Mm -hmm. of normalcy. Um, But there are lots of ways in which it feels like so much of what they're going through and who they are is actually very normal Mm -hmm. and is very relatable. Um, And I feel like there's there's an interesting play within the novel and what the concept of normal is and almost just squashing it entirely. Yeah, I mean, there's a quote which I really ought to look up because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mangle it really badly and paraphrase it, but um, in Margaret Drabble's novel, The Millstone, mm-hmm. um, the narrator says at some point something like, uh, I'm sure the experiences that I was having were very ordinary experiences, and if they weren't, it wouldn't be worth writing about them. And I remember being really struck by that when I read it because it felt so true to me. And um, what, what I really love to read about and to write about are experiences that are in fact completely banal, <laughs> but that don't necessarily conform to our narratives about what normality is. So like experiences that maybe feel weird while they're happening, but are in fact like utterly run of the mill because they happen to pretty much everyone. Um, and I mean, you're, you're so right in that the two main characters... I should say the title was a very late addition to the text. Actually, the last piece of text that got attached to the novel was the title. So it was not like I was started with that and then wrote from there. Um, but I do think the two main characters have very different relationships to the idea of normality. So as you say, Marianne feels totally alienated from the idea of normality. Sometimes she seems to feel like she's a little bit better than normal people. Sometimes she actually thinks she's a lot worse than normal people. Um, Connell, I think at various points in the novel, just desperately wants to attain what he sees as the mm-hmm. status of normality. That's like what he aspires to. And when he falls short of it, he becomes very anxious. Um, so they do negotiate different relationships with the sort of the normal. Um, but at the end of the day, they are both really just very normal. Um, nothing that happens to them is exceptional at all. Everything that they undergo is just like mundane. Um, but that's what I'm interested in. I mean, obviously, my own life is also very mundane, um, and it interests me mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm living it. So I do. I I'm interested in writing about like just regular stuff, um, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I think I'm interested in inhabiting the idea of normal and sort of trying to expand or subvert or question it from within it, mm-hmm. rather than saying rather than stepping outside it and trying to observe it from there, if that makes any sense. I don't know if it does. No, I think that does make sense. I think it's I think it's also interesting because I think that so much of the so much of what they go through in the novel is them struggling with with what is normal. So the kind of the so it's like falling in love, sexual desire, mm. um, just the transition from school to university. These are quite normal experiences, mm-hmm. but so much of their internal monologue is um, them struggling to kind of modulate either these internal feelings or these external experiences and that kind of close um, kind of psychological portraiture that you do kind of really reminds me of people like uh, um, like Sheila Hattie or Ben Lerner and it, that also sort of feels quite contemporary 
Um, I don't know if like I, you, I think you like Sheila's work. Yeah, and, and Ben Lerner's work very much. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I also just, I mean, I think that's an extremely flattering comparison um, for me. And, and I think um, the reason that I feel that way is because I think that writers like Sheila Hetty, like Ben Lerner, they're really like changing the technology of the novel in a way that I feel like I'm not. Like, I think they are really trying to work out a new way to write a novel and write a new kind of novel because, you know, cultural conditions and material conditions have changed. So the ways that we respond to those in narrative or in art or whatever should change as well. Um, and I believe in that. I don't know that I've accomplished that, though. I think that my work is more formally conservative, not by, not by my intention. Um, but I think, like, stepping back from what I've done and looking at it critically, I think it is quite... Um, it is quite like a novel, you know? It is quite like a story <laughs> being... To, and, like, it, it has all the hallmarks of what you would call a novel. So I think it's less, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm pleased to hear you make that comparison. Those are writers that I admire and look up to very much. Um, but I worry that what, I, what I'm doing isn't really as radical as what they're doing mm -hmm. in terms of the form that I've so far managed to sort of um, make for myself. I would like to just like, to just do something more formally challenging, but I don't know how. I feel like I'm quite limited by... Um, I feel like I'm not actually in all that much control of the creative process. So yeah. That's something that you probably hear a lot from writers, obviously. I feel like I just have to write whatever comes into my head. Mm -hmm. um, so then when I step back from it, I'm never sure about its relationship to sort of, in the other part of my brain, the philosophy of the novel. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a relationship that I have to negotiate kind of for myself. Um, but there are definitely contemporary writers who are doing really interesting and subversive things with form. Um, and those are the writers, honestly, who I'm most interested in reading, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. But I think, I think even if there aren't the kind of these kind of formal overlaps, there is very much this um, charting of like, the movement of emotion and thought, which I think happens in both those novelists and also in your mm. writing. And I don't think that necessarily the formal thing is so important, but there's this effect on the reader, which is that you feel like these people think like you think mm. for example and also this kind of quant this kind of quality of almost like a of anxiety i think like mm. these these two characters are quite anxious mm. characters and in some way that feels uh, representative of like a kind of contemporary mode like we live at a kind of like anxious yeah. time um, I don't know if that's something that you were... Uh, if you feel like that relates to something that's in our contemporary moment or yeah definitely there is i mean thematically yes um, anxiety and like precarity mm -hmm. and ambiguity in relationships um, also I would say um, yeah I mean a range of thematic concerns and also um, I guess you would say um, those are writers who are working in what you might loosely call autofiction yeah. um, that's not a tradition that I'm directly engaged with here but at the same time though I don't think there's a whole lot of distance between me and my characters like, I don't think that I'm standing behind my characters sort of judging them 
or like trying to point out their foibles for the reader or like winking at them behind the reader's back as if to say, oh, aren't these people idiots, not like you and me. Um, I think I'm sort of just there with them and then, and then often I am actually conflated with them in people's responses to the book, mm-hmm. which I completely understand. I think it's because I have made that decision to eliminate... There's no or if there is, it's not intentional, ironic distance between no. me and these characters, or very rarely. And it's not something that I ever employ intentionally, because it's not what I'm trying to do. I, what I'm trying to do is just sort of... Um, yeah, I wish I knew what I was trying to do. I think what I'm trying to do is sort of just observe them um, and sort of be with them in a non-judgmental, just sort of observational capacity, yeah. letting it play out and then describing it sort of as neutrally as I can, um, just just laying it out and giving them all the tools that I have. So not like, I mean, making them just as capable of analysing their own emotional lives and their own interactions with others as I would be, which is sometimes a fair amount and sometimes not very much, mm-hmm. but not trying to withhold anything from them, just kind of giving, giving it all to them and then by extension to the reader. And so I think that's, like, that's probably a technique or a, an approach that I, that I learned from reading like autofiction and, and contemporary non-fiction or like works that, that blur the boundary between fiction and non-fiction. Um, that that in some sense I managed to take that and bring it back to what is in my case very conventional fictional narrative which none of it actually happened in that sense yet. I think that's so interesting because I actually read Normal People um, at the same time as reading Outline like I read them on the same trip Mm -hmm. and I remember and I kind of like looked back at um, things that I had written at the time and I was kind of like and I'd wondered if um, anyone else had seen had felt like they were almost like opposites of each other um like with that kind of Fae trilogy and I know that you've also written about the Fae trilogy um kind of that the protagonist is sort of kind of removed almost Mm. like she's almost absent Mm. and you don't have really have a true sense of her subjectivity instead you have all these other characters swarming around her and you have um them this confessional mode that they just seem to be in where they just kind of tell all about their lives and their experiences and then in your fiction instead we have this kind of like hyper subjectivity almost it feels like this kind of like incredible closeness and it's I found it interesting the way that it felt like those two modes are both sort of perhaps reaching for a sense of truth or reality mm-hmm. but through from very different directions mm-hmm. um i don't know if they're if in terms of this adopting a kind of realist style if you are if you have a sense of are you like questing for something that is like a, a portrait of something that is real and true do you have that as a because obviously it's fiction oh, so that's a good question yeah, I mean, I sometimes ask myself, like, what are my actual ideals when I'm writing, as in for, as in for my fiction? Um, like, when I'm going along in, during the writing process, I'm just asking myself, does this work? So, like, I'm putting two characters in a scene, and they're having a conversation, or they're having an argument, and all I'm asking myself is, does the, is this working? If it's working, I keep on writing it. And then if it's not, I just, I do something different. So I take someone out of the room or put somebody else in or make them have a different kind of conversation. Um, Always answering the question of whether it works on the page. And then obviously the really interesting question is, what do I mean by it works? Like, what is that? Mm -hmm. Um, Do I mean that it feels true? Like, do I mean that it, it conforms to a sense of reality or plausibility? But I don't really think that that's all I mean, because it's possible to write a very plausible scene that is extremely boring to read. Um, And that, for me, wouldn't be something I would say works. So it can't just be lifelike in a a limited sense. Um, 
it has to have, for me, it has to have like a kind of energy. But like, what is that energy? I'm now just replacing the word works with a different word that I also haven't defined. Um, it just has to feel, I guess part of it is, and I think this is another question that I ask myself, is I have to feel as though there's something happening or unfolding. There's some kind of change or development that I'm watching in process. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be like people's entire lives are in the balance. Obviously, the stakes in my novels are incredibly low. Um, but it has to be something. Something has to be changing or developing in some way. Um, and I'm interested in why, because it's not like in the novelists, like, like in Outline, a novel I admire very, very much, Rachel Cusk's novel, um, there isn't necessarily a sense that things are changing or, or developing yeah. in that way, and yet it definitely works, whatever that means. So I don't know why I'm so attached to the particular values that I, that I bring. Um, it's, it's purely kind of intuition and instinct. And I wonder, like, is, there, is it even valuable to try and break down what that instinct is telling me? I don't know. Um, but it is, it's definitely an interesting question. Those are just the sort of like instinctive values that I bring when I'm in the writing process. And they're obviously culturally conditioned. They're, you know, they're, they're, I developed them through reading novels. So it's always possible that they could change. Yeah, uh, but I think that it's interesting to hear you talk about this, what feels like quite an intuitive way of writing. Mm. Um, because you also obviously are there, well, so you're following your characters, you're following your narrative there, but you have ideas and politics and beliefs outside of, your craft and the way that you have developed your particular technique and craft and I'm quite interested in the way that those two things interact like you're a well-known Marxist Sally mm, so yeah <laughs> I'm interested in how your politics interact with your with your fiction writing yeah I mean for me it's definitely another one of the questions that kind of dogs me in my work um I think obviously what I'm doing is not sort of straightforwardly didactic um not really didactic at all um if I wanted to convince people to share my ideology, I would just write a pamphlet called How to Share My Ideology, <laughs> describing all the stuff that I believe. And that's obviously not what I've done. Um, I think... So then, it, so then it raises a question which for me is interesting, which is like, what is it to write a, a socialist novel um, or like a Marxist novel, feminist novel, whatever that might be? Um, because it's obviously not necessarily with the intention, or at least not for me, of convincing people who come to read the novel to share that particular framework. I suppose it's just being attentive to um, the way that the world is structured through the lens of those ideological frameworks. And that's like, as a Marxist, I think that class is sort of the structuring principle of our social life. So then when it comes to writing a novel, of course I have to be attentive to the way that class structures social life. Otherwise I'm not writing about the world that we really inhabit. And I don't give myself credit for doing it like really well or anything, um, but just trying to do it is, is obviously part of um, the sort of task that I set myself. To at least be sensitive to and attentive to and to try to observe the effects of those broad systems like class, like gender, um, on the very minute sort of again, low-stakes, small-scale interactions between the characters. Um, because otherwise, then my characters would just be sort of floating in the void. Like, if, if they didn't have um, 
positions within a class system, if they didn't have positions within a gender system, they wouldn't be like real characters as I understand them because we live in a world that is structured by those systems. So it's about an openness to observing those principles in action, but not necessarily making any conclusions about them. Like, I'm not writing this novel to show that the patriarchy is bad. I'm just writing it with, a, with a, an attempt at openness um, when it comes to describing how that system, if you want to call it the patriarchy, actually works in the lives of women and men. Um, yeah, so I think, but, but it's not necessarily that I'm happy with that answer. I think that that's just sort of a description of the approach that I've used so far. But I feel like it's very tenderly done within the novel. So when um, you have Connell getting his scholarship, for example, and the way that he describes in like a very real sense the material effect that that will have on his life, I found that like incredibly like moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then also it's something it feels like you have like fun with it as well. Like I mean. Um, you have his descriptions of uh, everyone who's being like quite posh, like they're not actually reading any of their books. Um, you have these very sharp occasions of it, for example, in conversations with friends when Francis is emailing Melissa at the end and she says, you know, I wasn't trying to, um, I wasn't trying to trash your life, I was trying to steal it. And you get this sense of the way that the class dynamics are driving the characters. It's not just that the forces are sort of acting um, inflicting things on them but they condition them mm. in some way and I found that quite interesting that like the you have this mix of forces which is partly like the human desires and partly these external forces yeah and I mean it's trying to observe the interactions between the two and always also trying to observe the relationship between the individual and the category or the class that they belong to because like when I'm writing say Marianne in this book I'm not trying to write about like women and the stuff that women go through. Like, I'm not trying to write about her as an example of womanhood or young womanhood or young Irish womanhood. Like, that doesn't, it doesn't interest me to do that at all. What interests me is to have this person in this particular set of relationships in which she finds herself within her family, within her school, and so on. Um, and to watch her navigate those things with, with a sensitivity to the sort of what is sort of irreducibly individual about her that's not, that can't just be explained by the interaction of the forces that you describe, but also observing how those forces um, shape and condition her responses to things. So, I mean, I'm always, like, I'm always sort of cautious of having the characters be seen like because I try to pay attention to systems like class and gender, that the characters will be seen as like representatives of yeah. their class or gender, um, which is not the kind of thing that I'm interested in. It's not like a parable where Marianne represents womanhood or anything. Um, but of course, I also want to um, observe in process how it feels for her, just as the just as the strange, irreducible individual person that she is, to be caught in the matrix of all these operations of power. Yeah. Um, and it's something else that you've also, I feel like you kind of have that, that, um, that lens is within the fiction, but it's something also that you've spoken about outside of that within the industry. So you, your, the book was Awardstone's book of the year last year. Um, and in your speech, you thanked uh, the booksellers, but also you thanked um, people in the warehouses, delivery drivers. Um, it feels like you also have this interaction with the book as, like a, as a product, like the pub- publishing is a trade. Mm. Um, I don't know how as the book becomes more successful, does your relationship to it as a product, does that change? Or Yeah, I mean, 
I'm, I feel somewhat conflicted um, about my participation in the system like of publishing um, because, you know, as you and I know, it's a profit-making industry. I am also a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't think that that, and have been very open about the fact that I don't think that that is a good way um, to produce a healthy, creative, or artistic culture. I don't think that in terms of... Um, producing worthwhile, challenging, interesting works of art. I don't think the profit-making model is good. And I also think that it has all these ethical problems, right, that I would identify as, um, from a Marxist perspective, um, that at every point in the, in the chain of production, there are sort of, like, there is an ethical crisis, really. Um, so I think it's unhealthy for the arts. I think it's unhealthy for our society generally. And I think capitalism in total is killing the planet. So I, yeah, I mean, so then to what degree am I participating in this system? I don't know. Um, you know, I, act, I actually don't know. Um, and so, I mean, I'm obviously in a position where I can say that I believe those things. But since I can say that I believe them and there are no consequences, we can assume that my saying that doesn't actually make a difference to anyone. Um, because if it did, no, I wouldn't just be allowed to come out and say it. I mean, if it actually threatened the system that I'm talking about, mm. as in the system of, of profit-making, um, it, it couldn't be so easily accommodated within that system. So, I mean, you can have these gestures of resistance, but ultimately those gestures are all in service of selling this, which costs money. Um, and I don't really... I feel very uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know... Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what um, sort of artists, writers, critics or whatever um, can do outside the system um, which seems so capable of accommodating absolutely every gesture of resistance to it. I mean, I think that that's, that's like a quite a fundamental question, isn't it? Mm. But I mean, it, it also seems like it's, it's almost like a question that is the answer is that it's impossible. Like, it is impossible to have something that would function outside the capitalist system because the capitalist system is all-encompassing. It's everything. And everything can be kind of mm. turned into a profit and everything can become a... Um, has, like, a currency of value. So even beyond the material value of the book, there's that fantastic scene in Normal People where Connell is at the reading and he's talking about the book's becoming uh, units of cultural capital for individuals, that um, they are these, like bourgeois class signifiers mm. um, and yet you write yeah. and yet you want people to read your books yeah um, <laughs> do I? no I do, <laughs> I do. Um, yeah I mean I'm, I, I'm pleased that people are reading them and I find that I've, I do find that kind of touching on a personal <laughs> level um, yeah I mean yeah so for those of you who haven't read it there's this scene where one of the protagonists goes to a literary reading it's not really a reading like this. It's in a college, yeah. um, in a university. Um, but in other ways, it's maybe a little bit similar. And um, someone introduces the writer, the writer gets up and reads, and then there, I think there's a Q&A. Um, and Connell, who's a university student at the time, feels that the entire thing is sort of bourgeois pantomime, um, that, the, that the writer has been completely captured by the elitist academic institution, and that the writing has essentially become a way for people to bond over their superior class status together. Um, and I think he... Like, I'm writing that as a novelist, not as a polemicist. I'm yeah. writing that as a novelist because Connell the individual character has come from a working class background, he's moved from a small town, um, he goes to the most elitist university in Ireland, um, he feels very alienated um, 
and shut out from a lot of what he sees there. And that process of alienation interested me as a novelist, as someone who was interested in his in his psychology and in the development of his relationships. That process interested me. So it wasn't like I felt I was sort of shoehorning in my own personal criticism of of literary readings. And um, although certainly I've experienced a lot of the same feelings that he had then, um, it was that it felt like it felt like something that was worthwhile within the text of the novel. And if it hadn't worked, I wouldn't have put it in. So it's not like my dedication to, you know, like inserting this piece of ideology in the book overrode my instincts. It's that I think it emerged from the novel form. And that's as much of a criticism of me, really, because I'm not capable of doing anything that the novel can't make room for. Yeah. And I think the novel made room for that, for that criticism of the novel, if you want to call it that, um, which shows that the novel is a very capacious genre, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, it, you know, I was interested more when I was writing that, I was interested more in how Connell felt um, than I was in articulating my own critique. I have plenty of spaces where I can do that if yeah. I want to. I don't need to hide them in my novel. Um, little did I know that meant that a lot more people would end up reading it, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, yeah, I just felt like it, it, it worked. Um, and so that was why it ended up in there. And I think that that speaks to my sort of the question that I'm always asking myself about the relationship between my politics on the one hand and the stories that I'm trying to tell in my books. Um, but I think the s- stories perhaps that you are trying to tell are there is something within them that is also speaking about the human condition and is also speaking about the way we live now in terms of our interdependence and I feel like that is Mm -hmm. a very meaningful story to tell if we're living in this time of uh, like neoliberal individualism or Mm. this kind of thing and you've said that you hate individualism Mm. that to tell the story of the way that people are always connected that they are always um, there are always different forms of codependency and it is impossible for us to just be these single individual units Mm. that feels like quite a powerful idea to me well, thank you. Um, but I also think if that, were th- if that were the idea that I were trying to get across, again, I would just write like an essay or a book like exploring the idea of interdependency in a non-fictional way, like mm-hmm. talking through my sort of, I don't know, philosophical approach or whatever. Um, but instead I wrote a novel and I wasn't writing the novel to try and illustrate a message or even to dramatize a principle. Sometimes I wonder if I was trying to dramatize the principle that people can change one another. That is sort of like the mission statement of the book. And maybe it does, maybe the book does actually kind of dramatize that. Um, But I hope it does so in a way that's open to the problematics of it as well. Yes. yeah, but I, I mean, I do, I do write about interdependency. Uh, I do try to write in a way that's, um, that sort of recognizes the myths, the stories that we tell ourselves about our own individual identities and how those stories don't always quite match up with the way that we feel and the way that we live our everyday lives. Um, but still, at the end of the day, I'm, writing, I'm just writing stories. I'm not trying to make a point or convince anyone of anything. And, um, and I, don't, I don't believe in a lot of what we're... A lot of the present sort of dominant discourse about, um, about novels and narrative fiction generally as being sort of um, a way of creating empathy. I don't know that I really believe that. 
Um, I think it would be nice to assure ourselves as writers that everything we do, no matter what it's saying, has mm-hmm. a great political purpose because it teaches people to love one another. Um, that would be really nice. I don't know... I don't know that I... I don't think that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that the political value of the concept of empathy is a little bit nebulous for me. Um, you know, I'm interested in structures and systems from a political point of view. I'm not necessarily interested in... I'm very interested in compassion and empathy, but not necessarily from a political systemic point of view. So I think um, I'm skeptical of a lot of the claims made for literature in those contexts, and I don't want to sort of uncritically participate in those claims either. I mean, obviously I am someone who loves books, um, but... I, I mean, I think there's a way of, of giving ourselves too much credit for loving books, you know, um, t- like of, of sort of overstating um, what we're really doing by reading books or writing them. Um, so I think maybe I've become a little bit more inclined to limit my claims for what books can do um, just, because I, just because maybe of an anxiety of sort of overselling the claim um, mm-hmm. for literature as an agent of social change. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... It's- probably wise to be something to be circumspect I think certain narratives around empathy and also representation can sometimes feel quite thin because what is the actual effect in like a material sense in, in the world mm. um, so I mean I, I mean I agree with you but um, I wonder if we might talk a little bit about what you're writing now um, so you just had a story published in the New Yorker and I've seen an announcement for a fellowship mm. which has has a working title for your next book mm. in um, which is Beautiful World, Where Are You? I wonder if you at all want to talk about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's early days with that one. Um, I'm trying to write a new novel. Um, and I have sort of, you know, we've been talking about dynamic and characters, so I have sort of four characters, which means however many dynamics. Um, and that for me is interesting and and it's fun to move the pieces around the board at the early stage. Um, What I have found in the process of trying to write this, and again, it's still very early on and it may not end up actually being a novel, um, is that unlike the first two, um, with those those books, as they eventually became, kind of the first thing that arrived was the like voice, the way of telling the story. So like when, when I started writing conversations with Franz, friends, I had Francis's voice in my head straight away. And, and the first few paragraphs that I wrote of that book were like, as they are now, pretty much exactly the same without a sentence changed. Even the first few pages, really exactly the same, because I knew how she spoke in, in terms of her narrative voice. Um, and then I, I kind of worked from there in terms of the stuff that I was interested in, the dynamics and the themes and, and concerns. And similarly then, when it, when it came time to write this, you know, I've described how I met these characters in different situations, but when I went to write about their school lives, I fell very naturally into this close third-person narrative style, alternating between them. That all kind of just came like a, like a, just a natural... It was like I knew what story I wanted to tell, and that was just a natural way that it, it occurred to me to tell it. Um, with the thing that I'm trying to write now... I've had a much longer process of trying to work out how do I tell the story of these people? Whose perspective do I tell it from? And why? Um, and how? Um, 
so and 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 like and again questions about when in their lives I want to meet them like where does the real story of their dynamic begin um so all of those questions have made this a much more um a much sort of slower process I think the the substance of the idea is similar to stuff I've worked on before in terms of it's it's about intimacy it's about love um complex relationships and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of what I'm trying to do with tone, perspective, or form, it hasn't come quite as naturally to me. And sometimes that makes me feel like it's just not going to work, and maybe it won't. Um, and sometimes it makes me feel like maybe I'm tr- what I'm trying to do is to find a way that's slightly less formally constrained than the first two have been. Um, not a whole lot in the sense that I'm still very much working with scenes and, and stuff and, 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 the, and the previous two books are very much structured around scenes. So I think a lot of that will remain. But, um, but trying to find, asking myself questions about what narrative is and what is, like, what is tone and what is perspective, who is actually telling this story and stuff like that. Not that I didn't ask myself those questions before, but I just answered them very early on in the process and moved on, whereas now they've taken up a lot more of my thinking time around this project. Um, but I've really enjoyed... I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying spending time with these characters. Um, and that, for me, is like, that's all I need. If I can enjoy being with the characters, then every, all the other difficulties will solve themselves. Um, I'll just spend as much time with them as I can, write as much about them as I can, um, and, you know, bring them into different scenes, bring them, in, bring them into different European countries. I do enjoy doing that. Um, and then, you know, see, see what they get up to over there. Um, and then that, and they probably will actually do that again in this one too, if there, if there is a next one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of loosely what I'm trying to do. And then also, I guess, um, you probably weren't expecting this long of an answer. No, no, no I, it's great. I'm fascinated. Um, I guess that since I, so I started writing this in 2015. And since then, I don't want to put sort of, I don't want to get too much into this sort of um, global political crisis, Mm -hmm. but I have become much more aware of a sort of global political crisis and and much more keenly aware, I think, just as as my own totally personal individual thing, much more keenly aware of this sort of environmental crisis and the, what seems now like the inevitability of um, some kind of environmental collapse, if not outright civilizational collapse, although personally I think that's very likely, um, radical shifts in the way that we um, live. And so, like, what is, it, what is it to write a novel on what feels like the precipice of that moment? Um, like, <laughs> what is the novel for at a moment like that? Um, and I guess, although I was certainly a critic of social systems in, 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 at the time when I was writing these books, I didn't feel as convinced of or as frightened about what I now see as the extreme likelihood of full civilizational collapse. Um, and so I guess those ideas and those anxieties um, are, are definitely informing the substance of, and I think my approach to, mm-hmm. the, the, the thing that I'm working on now, whether it turns out to be a novel or not, I don't know. Um, so I think that we're all really excited about that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I don't mean to speak on behalf of everyone, but um, I think that we'll have to hand it over to questions mm. now. So if there are people that have been thinking of their questions, building them up in their minds... You can raise your hands into the air. Claire is here with a microphone and she will come towards you. 
Um, raise them question. high. So we've got one person over here and two over well, here. You, you, you work yeah. away. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Thank Hello. you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm interested in your approach to the mechanics of storytelling. You've spoken quite a lot about experimenting with settings, dropping characters into different places, mm. moving around dynamics. Does that come intuitively or did you pick up various kind of experimental techniques along the way or is it all in your imagination to begin with or how does that work? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question. Thank you. Um, I think it's, it's definitely... I've, I've sort of developed my taste for what a story should be just by reading other novels and by like watching films and stuff and developing a sense of like how narrative works and then just getting like a little feel for it and then and then so so then that that defines what what I'm trying to do so what I'm trying to do is tell a story in a way that feels like narratively right whatever that means and 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 that has been shaped by my sort of engagement with like cultural traditions so then within that I guess I have I just have like an intuitive sense of things like not wanting to repeat the same setting too many times. So like if I'm having my characters, like often I'll be working with two, two particular characters and following the development of their relationship in some way, which a lot of the time will be they're having conversations about their relationship together. So how do I kind of like vary that up and make it a bit more interesting on the page? They can't have all their conversations in bed. That just gets like boring and repetitive to read. So, um, and also they look at the ceiling too much. Don't read my books checking how often they look at the ceiling because they do it a lot. Um, but so, so then it's like I, I can know and I can feel when that's happening, when that's getting repetitive. And then I think, okay, well, let's pull them out, make them go to a book launch if it's Conversations with Friends or make them go to a, like a Deb's fundraiser in Normal People, put them in a different social setting put them around people, so make them be around each other's friends. Maybe their friends don't know that there's something going on. Usually in my novels, that has been the case. So um, things like that. Yeah, I, I tend to just have a feeling for wanting variety in the mechanics of the story and then using particular techniques to attain that variety. And, and obviously one of the techniques that I've used twice so far and potentially three times is making my characters go on holidays together. Um, and like that can be a nice change of scenery because um, the novels that so far have been set in Dublin um, and uh, Dublin for me has been a very fruitful setting. Uh, I enjoy writing about it very much. Um, but it is also like um, limited by certain geographical and material facts so it can be nice to take them out of that and put them somewhere sunny for instance. Um, so it's, it's generally just like a, I have an instinct for what I want in terms of the variety that I'm trying to achieve, in terms of the directions that I'm trying to push the relationship in, and then I sort of feel like I'm scrolling in my mind through different options for where the characters can meet or run into each other. or um, And then often where they end up meeting um, will determine a lot of the content of what they end up saying to one another. So it's like an interesting kind of little experiment for me. Having said all that, and I will just add one more thing, most of what I write, I delete. So... Most of the time, when I come up with an idea for where to put my characters or what to have them say to each other, it's not good, and I delete it, and it, go, it goes into my deleted scenes file. Um, and in both cases, for this book and for the last book, the deleted scenes files were longer than the book. So my experiments, it's like trial and error, but emphasis on error. <laughs> um, uh, so that's sort of my, my like method, and then very much feeling my way through for what works. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um, I guess for me, the, the reason I swallowed your books whole, like I think 
a lot of people have, is that they, they zing with life, with all of whatever you've both been talking about. For me, that's what was most compelling. They just, they were alive. Um, and just I wanted to ask you a question about the, you, you, you talked about formal constraints that you feel you're still within, which to me, uh, especially uh, the one that just came out in paperback. Uh, normal people. Normal people. It, it didn't seem formal at all. It's besides that incredibly close third-person-ness, uh, the fact that it's so much in present tense and mm-hmm. also without speech marks, I think, to me, how did you arrive at that? And why did, you, why did that seem like the way you wanted to write that book? Yeah, well, um, that's, thank you. That's, a, that's another very good question. I dispensed with speech marks quite some time ago. So there's no speech marks in the first novel either. I don't know that I've ever published fiction that did have them. No, I definitely haven't. Um, I used to use dashes to introduce dialogue. And then shortly before I sent them, I think it was shortly before I sent the manuscript of Conversations with Friends to my agent, Tracy, um, I did like command F on the file and deleted all of the long dashes I had been using. Just took them out completely and then reread it and thought, yeah, it's fine. I don't <laughs> it's like it's perfectly clear when the characters are speaking to each other. No, I wasn't confused. So, um, so I just decided to leave them out. I guess because a lot of my work is dialogue, um, for me, speech marks just looked intrusive on the page because there's so often there'll be like pages and pages of dialogue. Um, this, I didn't like how the speech marks looked. But then it was also about... Um, not wanting to sort of seal the dialogue off from the narrative, like wanting the dialogue to take a sort of natural kind of flowing place with the, with the, um, the, the text of the narrative itself, the body of the prose itself. So I think that was what sort of led me to make that decision. In terms of why I wrote it in present tense, that was because I was using a lot of flashbacks, and it's a lot easier if you're putting the flashbacks in past tense, then you can put your main body of your narrative in present tense, and the flow between them is really easy. If I had written it all in past tense, then I would have had to seed the flashbacks in like past participle, and that gets like really ugly and complicated to read after just a few sentences. So honestly, it was a very mechanistic decision. It wasn't particularly like creative. It was just like, here's what I want here's what I want to have happened between these characters and here's how I want to present what has happened. Now, how can I make the individual sentences as sort of smooth and unobtrusive as I can? And I think for me, the, the, the answer to that was put it in present tense, have the, pl- have the flashbacks take place in the past, don't use any speech marks, don't use things like italics and stuff like that, insofar as possible, just present the text plainly to the reader. Um, And that felt to me like the right way to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, Like, they're just kind of, in a way, minor stylistic choices, but I guess they spoke to what I was trying to do, which was to make myself, my own presence as the author, sort of as unobtrusive as I could and just allow the story of the characters to be dominant in the, in the text, if that makes sense. Hi, so I have two questions, because I'm obsessed with you. Um, <laughs> so um, Normal People was really personal to me when I read it, and like, it's a book that like, spoke really deeply to me. So I guess my first question is that, I mean, I guess my, one of my favorite parts about reading and writing is that through writing, you sort of discover things as you go along, and you discover things about yourself and other people. So I guess my first question is, um, do, you, do you learn anything about yourself, or do you any, learn anything about kind of life generally from writing normal people? 
And then my second question is, um, the ending of the novel is amazing, and I love rereading it when I'm having a shitty day all the time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so I was, and I felt like the the stuff with the potted plant at the end of the novel and people changing one another, um, it felt kind of like the mission statement of the book and sort of like kind of the philosophical kind of mm. full circle of the book. So I was wondering if that was intentional and also kind of the ending is quite open-ended in many senses um, because there's no decision really made at the end. Um, so I was wondering how you came about writing the ending as well. So those are two questions for yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll go the second question first, and then if I can still remember the first question, I'll answer it afterwards. Um, so the second question is about the ending, how I came to write the ending of that book. Um, so I've talked a little bit about my trial and error process, um, and often I find what happens is I'll send my characters like in the wrong direction, and then I'll hit an obstacle. And then my job is to see how far I have to rewind the sort of path they've gone down um, before I can meet them again and send them down a different path. So sometimes I'll write like, I'll have them make a decision in chapter three and then I'll get to chapter eight and then I'll realize, oh, it's what happened in chapter three that's wrong. That's why I'm having the problem I'm having now. Chapters four, five, six, etc., seemed fine on the surface, but in fact, chapter three had created a structural issue that needs to be resolved. So 20,000 words are gone. I'm back to chapter three, which is really quite an early chapter. Um, and that happened a lot. Um, that happened a lot in the writing of, of normal people and, and in conversations with friends as well. Um, so the ending was, for that reason, really the last thing that I wrote, because when I got there, I didn't have any more or couldn't see any more structural issues remaining to be resolved. It felt like I'd brought the characters to the point that I, that I wanted to get them to um, without taking any wrong turns along the way. So it was when I wrote that that I knew I had sort of finished my novel. Of course, there was work to be done, editorial work, um, but, the, but the body of the novel itself and the story that it told was complete at that point. Um, for me, uh, and, and I and I did, and it is an, it is a, a, a kind of an open ending, certainly in terms of, of the relationship between these characters. I think it's almost an entirely open ending. We don't know what's what what the future holds for that relationship, um, but but I think what we do know is that it has had some degree of a formative effect on both of them. And I suppose, as you point out, that's kind of um, that's the principle that the novel is dramatizing. Like I was saying earlier. Um, the the effect of this relationship, the formative effect on these two people for the rest of their lives um, is, is, I think, hopefully feels true by the time you get to the end of the book. Like, it's all very well to say, oh, people can have a profound effect on one another. But to actually see that in process between two people who feel real um, is something different, I think. Whether I accomplished that, I don't know, but I think that's what I was trying to, to kind of get at to do um, in, that, in that ending. Um, and, the, yeah, and the image of them being plants in the same soil, that, yeah, that felt for me like kind of the, the central image of the book, really, in a way. Um, and then your first question was, did I learn anything new about myself while writing it? E yeah, well, when I wrote the first book, I learned that I could write a book. Um, very important lesson, as it turns out. Um, and I really took that with me into the writing of this one. Um, and, and then I learned I could write a second one. So I'm still waiting to see if I learn the lesson that I can also write a third. Um, but yeah, I think it's funny. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure that I have uh, changed a lot as a person since I wrote those books. But it's difficult to see from what feels like still quite a close vantage point. Conversations with Friends only came out two years ago, mm -hmm. which is 
relatively recently. Um, so it's difficult, I think, for me to get a to get a feel for um, what those books have done to me as a person. Um, but yeah, but thank you for asking. And there's something also in the chronology of how you wrote these books in that you wrote Normal People and then I understand that it went in a drawer. No. And, no? No, wait, sorry. You wrote Conversations yeah, and it went in a yeah, drawer. Yeah, and yeah. Then, but then you wrote, you started working on Normal mm. People and then Conversations was yeah, sold. Yeah. So it's, were both of the books written by the time Conversations came out? No. no. I finished Normal People... Uh, like five, four months after the publication of Conversations with Friends. Mm -hmm. So Conversations with Friends came out when I had like a good bit of normal people done. It was nearly ready, but it wasn't quite ready. And then I kept working on it through the whole publication thing, which was good. Um, and then, I mean, it was good for me to have something going on in my own brain that, um, when I had a book coming out. I would really recommend that um, if anyone does have one. Um, and so then it was the October of that year that conversations with uh, that normal people was finished. Um, so it meant that quite a lot, the bulk of the work was already done before I had any books published at all, and that is true. And that that will that will regrettably never be the same again. Yeah. So here we are. But I think yeah. it's, it's interesting because there was that Patricia Lockwood piece, which I mean you, I know you did an event with Patricia as well, which is how do we write now? And mm. there's this beautiful bit towards the end where she writes about the purity of attention in that space when you're writing before any book has been published. Yeah, I love that essay. I love <laughs> I love that essay and well, I love that paragraph. Yeah, it's so very beautiful. I wonder if there's like if there's a way that you're thinking about those ideas as you're going into this third book now and writing it after you've had these two books come out into the world. Mm. And I'm sorry, and then we'll get back to questions. Yeah, I mean, certainly I am having to think about that. Um, and it's something that in many ways I wish I wasn't thinking about because um, because it's it's created something of a gap between my experiences and what I would call normal experiences. Um, the whole thing of having a book come out and then having another book come out is like something of an unusual experience. Um, and so it means that I feel myself to be a little bit um, at odds with sort of like yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess I feel worried that it has shaped my my life, my everyday life and my experience of the texture of life to the extent that I now want to write about that. And I don't know that I... I mean, I want to write about it because it's that's how I make sense of my life is by writing, not literally about the things that happen to me, but in some way sort of obliquely about the things that happen to me, um, putting them through some process and having them come out as fiction. Um, so I think it's a bit unfortunate in a way. <laughs> um, I mean, it's hugely fortunate in almost every other way, but I, I do kind of worry about it, what it means for my work, because I'm now aware of the fact that these books exist out in the world and are discussed in particular terms and ways by other people, um, that, I'm, that I'm running the risk of situating my own work that I'm literally doing on my laptop in that kind of cultural conversation that's going on. And I don't want that to happen at all. So yeah, I mean, there are little problems like that, but we'll get over them. Good. Good to hear it. Hello. Hello. Hiya. Um, you've spoken a lot about individualism and the relationships between people and the for you, it's all about how they change each other and they unfold. I was wondering, in a perhaps ambiguous, maybe a personal term, what is your rapport and how with your own characters? How does that unfold? 
Obviously, they're your babies, I presume. You've created them. They're beautiful, flawed, marvellous characters. But um, what is it for you that comes from writing these characters? What relationship do you have with them? Do you have a favourite? You know, how, how involved are you in the characters or is it more about the story and them as a unit? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's a bit of a... It's something that I ask myself and the answer is slightly disturbing to me um, in the sense that I believe that I am my characters. Um, I think that they are all, to some extent, refractions of um, or angles on my own psychology and my experiences of life. I know that while I was writing from their perspectives, I was drawing very deeply on my, not my experiences, but on my feelings, my impulses, and like my thoughts. Um, and I felt incredibly close to them, to Francis in the first book, um, and to both of the protagonists in this book. I felt like that I was them. That's a disturbing answer because there is a love story between them. Um, what the hell? <laughs> like, what, what is that about? That's really strange. I don't know. Like, why, why am I trying to dramatize a love story between two characters who are, in fact, both psychological projections of myself? Who would do that? It's just weird. Um, and I, so I still haven't figured it out. Am I in love with them, or are they me, or both? Um, so I don't, I don't know. I feel like a strong degree of affection for them and maybe that's the kind of affection of healthy self-esteem um, or maybe I exaggerate the extent to which they are myself because that's how it feels when I'm writing about them like when I'm inhabiting say Connell's brain or Marianne's brain it helps me to feel oh this is actually just me um, of course it's not. A lot of things happen to them and a lot of the things that they do, the behaviours that they act out, are not things that I either have ever done or honestly would ever do. Um, so they're not really me. So, so maybe it's just that I, I need to tell myself that or that that's the narrative that makes most sense to me when I'm writing about them and that actually they are sort of totally external to myself and that the kind of affection that I feel for them is actually like a borderline interpersonal <laughs> but of course they don't exist so that's complicated too um, but yeah I mean you've really got me there I don't know uh, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is but thank you for asking um, I feel like you're really revealing a lot I know time. I know um, so we've got time for just one more question so oh and there are loads so okay um, hi um, what's the significance of illness in your work I notice you write about it quite a lot Sally yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I do write about illness. I do write about um, sort of physical pain and suffering as well. Um, um, yeah, and what is the significance of it? I think for me, I tend to um, I tend to want to push my characters into situations that they f feel sort of uncomfortable in, or that they feel that the boundaries of their control over the situation are being tested. Um, and one of the ways that I do this, and the way that's probably most key to the, to the narrative structures of the books, is by sex through sexual desire. So my characters feel that they lose control of themselves and of, and of their relationships and of their social positions when they're overwhelmed by what they feel to be um, sort of uncontrollable, um, like uncontrollably strong desire for another person. Um, and then the other way that I do it is, is through observing what it 
feels like for them to experience pain, suffering, and illness that they have no control over. So um, sometimes this takes the form of sort of like mental illness, suffering. Sometimes it's physical illness. In the first novel, Francis suffered from endometriosis. Um, Sometimes the characters have sort of unspecified, unhealthy relationships with food. Um, So I think it's about trying to um, see what it feels like for these characters not to be in control. Um, why is that interesting to me? I guess it's, it's partly to do with um, my scepticism of agency. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really sceptical of individual autonomy. I'm much more interested about what happens to us when our individual autonomy fails than I am about the successful exercise of autonomy. And, and so for that reason, um, illness is, is, is something that I return to and that interests me from that perspective because it doesn't allow us the comforting myth that we are in fact in control of our own destinies, right? Most often illness is just visited on us um, from outside, nothing that we can do about it. Um, and all we can try to determine is our, our, is our sort of response to it and how we negotiate it with ourselves and with the people around us. So I think that's what it is. I think it's almost like it's the flip side of, the, of my interest in desire, is my interest in sort of pain and in fact actually the two can often be related um, in the in the stuff that I've done so far um, so yeah I think you've definitely identified a, a central thematic concern there thank you for your question <laughs> um, well Sally thank you so much I feel like you've been so expansive and so generous oh. with everyone's questions and I certainly feel like I've learned a lot about your work and it was very exciting to hear about the next book um, which we are all hotly awaiting um, so it can't come soon enough. Thank you well, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.